President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor, and also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Uh, I should note our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. I have a great guest in the studio with us for the hour. He's Dr. Vinay Nair, the co-founder, co-chairman of 55 Capital. They're an asset manager that specializes in providing portfolio solutions using ETFs. Uh, Vinay, it was nice getting to know you. Uh, thanks for coming down to the studio here. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to be back here. So yeah, let's. So great to be back here. So let's talk about why why you're saying that. So also not only the, the co-founder of Fifty Five Capital, but also a Wharton professor here. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your background, what, what your sort of research has been on, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into Fifty Five Capital. Sure. So I started my career teaching here full time, as you know, in the finance faculty. And uh, most of my research was trying to link asset pricing with corporate and macro fundamentals. Um, I left Wharton in 2008 to start a firm uh, that designed investment solutions using academic research, using the science. And uh, one of the solutions became what uh, 55 Capital is today. Very good. So connecting what you learned here or what you learned in the academics towards towards these type of solutions. So what are the types of, as you think about asset pricing, what are those those types of research areas that, that you, were, you were exploring? So there were two, I would say the two broad contributions that have happened in the last uh, two, two and a half decades from academic science. Uh, one of which is factors the, and return anomalies that people associate with uh, reward factors such as momentum, value, volatility type of factors. So some of my work was trying to link those anomalies with the true drivers of that anomaly. Oh, very good. So I'm going to come back to the factors discussion later. So that, I, mean, I want to hear your take on what factors you think have that make, make the most sense, what factors maybe make less sense. Let's come back to that. But let's, so, so let's go from starting to, from your leaving Wharton, starting uh, ADA was the firm? or ADA. ADA was the firm that you were doing before that. How did you go from ADA to, to founding the group? Uh, and you've got a lot of people, uh, you know, our chairman, Bruce Levine, or vice chairman, Bruce Levine, former president at Wisdom Tree, is involved with 55 Capital. You have a lot of um, heavy hitters from the ETF industry who are getting involved with 55. So how did talk about how you how you came to know the group and and, and sort of founded the firm. So at ADA, I had a, a group of uh, academic researchers who were professors in different schools, good schools like Wharton, and um, a group of practitioners who had built out significant asset management companies, one of whom was Lee Cranefus, who had started and created iShares within BGI, where Bruce Levine uh, was, I believe, the employee number one. Yeah. And two years back, uh, Lee came and told me, look, the world of ETFs has grown dramatically and advisors who use these ETFs need help. They're paralyzed. There are too many ETFs. They don't know how to use them. They need help in curating, packaging, and forming portfolios using ETFs. 
So, so that got us thinking a bit about what if we could take all the financial science that exists and design investment solutions that typically don't get to the advisory world and implement it using ETFs. That was a genesis of fifty-five. Um, that's great. I mean, between Bruce, between Lee, especially, you got two of the really grandfathers of the ETF industry, you could say. So it's it's really a, a great group. So let, let's sort of talk about you, you've been. So how long has Fifty Five Capital been been in business, and and where do you see your role uh, in terms of the industry? You know, the types of solutions you're trying to provide. It sounds like trying to help navigate through all the different ETFs that are out there and build portfolios. But talk about you know where where you see your you're trying to add value. So the lines of when 55 started are not that black or white because the research was going on for a while before. But the legal entity started um, late 2015. Bruce was formally um, brought in as a CEO of our advisory business at the beginning of last year. So we've been around for, uh, let's say, 15 months or so. Great. And with regards to you know, where we fit into the broader landscape and where we add value. I would say that that we are somewhere between the active and passive worlds because this debate that's been going on or the trend that's been going on of flows from active to passive, what we think is really going on is people are moving from actively picking securities and stocks to actively managing index exposures or betas. So really what we think is going on is active is migrating rather than active to passive. And we felt that that uh, people need some, some frameworks, some guidance around how to use these passive building blocks. Or put differently, I think we help people build, uh, we help people use passive building blocks much better. Right. So who would you say, you know, people listening to the program is, or are you listening, are you looking for end end clients, or you think you're reaching out towards um, advisory firms who would then use you as, as you know, a, a building block for their portfolio? I mean, who's the type of people who should be calling 55 Capital to use your services? Uh, two types of clients. First are advisors. So think of us as an advisor to the advisors, uh, where we have taken our investment capabilities and our tax management capabilities and our ETF know-how to really give the advisor some off-the-shelf and some uh, custom portfolios they can design. They can build their models using our capabilities, or they could just use some off-the-shelf strategies that uh, we've been managing. That's one client. The second type of client is, uh, is the enterprise. So there are some larger asset management firms that uh, are also using our capabilities to design portfolio strategies that they would then distribute in partnership with us. Very good. So, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of these portfolios. So you have, uh, you know, a global macro view of the world. Um, you know, a lot of people do, uh, and, and a lot of people in your position is, as ETF portfolio managers, you hear a lot about these robo solutions, um, you know, the betterments, the wealth fronts of the world going directly to the consumers. Maybe talk about how you see a lot of them positioned and where your portfolios would, would differ. Sure, but let me just step back for a second from an investing uh, landscape. If you just think about what's going on in the world, it's 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 gone through some significant shifts post-crisis and more recently, I would say, in the last year or so. And one of those shifts is that the macro risk is elevated, and it's been elevated since the crisis 
compared to what it was pre-crisis. Now, that changes the investment problem from trying to find alpha to managing betas. That mm. becomes a lot more important. It was always important. It's just a lot more important now. So the the other aspect to, to keep in mind is, you know, for the first time, maybe in the second half of last year, markets now have reflationary expectations. So deflation is no longer a scare as it was in the markets for a long time. Now, what that changes really is that when you start thinking of forming uh, diversified portfolios, an equity bond mix is no longer sufficient because with reflation and rates going upwards, you can have losses in both bonds and equities. And definitely bonds is no longer the safe haven. So you need to create multi-asset portfolios. It's been a long time since we've seen equities and bonds go down together. When, when is the last time you remember that, that happening? So apart from liquidity-driven sales, you know, which has happened uh, late 90s, 2003, 4, but those, those happened for short periods of time, early 90s. The real prolonged period where both of these have gone down has been in the 60s and the 70s, where, by the way, you had drawdowns in bonds of 40 50%. So, so we've been living in this world over the last 30, 35 years where we think bonds are safe. And anyone who studied history from the you know World War One knows that there are drawdown periods of 50, 75% in bond markets. So we sit at a time where, where if you really care about downside protection, which we think increasingly the demographics of investors are such that they want withdrawals, they want downside protection, they can't afford to simply invest and come back 30 years from now because they may not have 30 years. So when you're focused on withdrawals, you need downside protection which means you need diversified strategies, which today you can implement using truly multi-asset portfolios with all the the factor know-how that we have. Well, we're talking with Dr. Vinay Nair. He's the co-founder, co-chairman of 55 Capital, Wharton professor, uh, or former Wharton professor, would you say? Former full-time visiting now. Very okay. Former full-time and and, and still has, uh, still comes back here. so this is, I mean, it's, it's certainly interesting. I mean, I, we've talked, uh, Professor Hsu and I have talked a lot about, about, given the very historically low interest rate environment, a lot of you could say that a lot of people thought bonds would be this diversifier, but they potentially could, they could potentially not have these diversifying characteristics. If you get big runs in inflation, you get higher rates. I mean, how do you model the probabilities of that happening? I mean, how do you look at where we are in, in those asset classes? So we don't. We, we don't try to predict uh, when bonds will fall, if they will fall. Uh, what we really do is just create a more robust uh, machine. So instead of flying with one engine, you fly with four engines. Mm-hmm. Instead of predicting whether this engine is going to break down or not. Instead of you know, using one sail, you use many sails. And today you can do that by really building portfolios that are multi-asset, multi-region, multi-factor. And use all these building blocks to form a portfolio that is uh, much more robust to these uncertainties that exist today. So does, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm going in the wrong way, direction here, but is 55 capital allusion to you have 55 different sub-asset classes that you might be using as part of the portfolio? Is that not where the names come it from? Could be. It, it could be. It could be. You might have 55 <laughs> asset classes to diversify. Uh, the, we named the firm um, after the initials of uh, Lee's and my name, LV, which in Roman is 55. Okay, 
Very good. Um, so when you think about building that that set of tools to be you know more more diversified than stocks and bonds, I mean, let's talk about what are some of the the best diversifying assets. I mean, where where do you think you get? You know, I think some of the places people have looked at commodities, um, commodities in some ways has been a challenge. You have the futures, um, in futures. You know, historically, if you look at the last 30, 40 years, you know, there used to be a situation where, A, you got some return on the, the treasury component of, you know, when you're using commodities, you have to have a future, and then you anchor that with collateral of, of treasuries, which today have been earning close to zero. And then there's expectations built in for commodity prices to increase, what in the, in the finance world we call contango, where you're paying something to roll these futures. Do you think the case for commodities at all has changed given some of the capital that's come in and the contango that's baked in so that you're no longer getting paid to roll these futures? You're actually paying a good amount every year. I mean, I'm looking at costs today like 5% a year for some of these commodities. Yeah, commodities is, um, I think, not as well understood as it should be, especially in the advisory world, because often you can pick a commodity, but you have the same exposure through your equities basket. Sometimes many currencies are a direct play on some commodities. If you think of, let's say, an Australian dollar or a Canadian dollar, there's a heavy commodity exposure. Brazil. So Russia. Exactly, Brazil, Russia. And in, in some ways, when you think about diversifying, you need to, you need to think about uh, exposures rather than just the label of what the asset class is, um, which we do. The second thing is these these correlations or the contagion that a particular exposure or a particular label may have with another label, say commodities with equities, varies over time. You know, you find that that uh, there are times when Brazil moves just like the rest of the global markets, as it was doing a few years back. And other times, Brazil is quite independent from the global equity markets. So understanding how this, whether, whether a label is truly diversifying Second, understanding how that diversifying property changes over time. And third, we all know that regardless of any amount of diversification, there are periods in the markets where all correlations go up, such as the 2008 crisis, etc. And there's only one asset class that is truly uncorrelated with every other asset class at all times. Cash. Cash, right? So, so any good multi-asset portfolio needs to understand how to use cash as a safety tool. Hmm. So, so let's talk about one of the things. You, you said you don't model for expected returns on these things. You're, you're somewhat looking for correlations, for, for risk. Um, maybe talk about building these portfolios in, in a way that that's, that's incorporating these risk factors. So I mentioned earlier that two things that's come out of uh, science research and science. One is factors, which, which, which people understand better and is the more well-known contribution. The second is what we call risk forecasting. Um, it tells us that, look, it's difficult to predict returns on a sustainable basis. It's much easier to forecast risk. And that's part of the science we use to really just know when to fold your hand and when to play the card. Uh, doing that over over long periods of time really gives you downside protection. Um, there are times when the risk is not materialized and you see a massive uh, rally when you won't participate in the upside. But other times when the risk is materialized, 
you protect the downside. In fact, in the in the last one year, you had two interesting events. You had Brexit, where our risk forecast suggested very high risks way before anything like VIX would capture that, um, and and the risk materialized, and markets did correct. Uh, on the other hand, a Trump event, where uh, the risk materialized and the markets rallied. They they corrected for all of like four or five hours. That's right. But in either case, if you are looking for downside protection, steady withdrawals, these are not the types of events you want to be betting an outcome on and waging your savings on. These are types of events you just want to make sure you drive slow through these check posts so your wealth can compound over time and give you the steady withdrawals that you really need. So how how do you look at the the risk of the current market? I mean, do you think that um, certainly people talk about valuations being extended? Um, we've been in a, a very strong cycle, you'd say late cycle here for our markets, for our economy. I mean, where, how do you view the risks that are building up in the different asset classes today? So it's interesting. When you look at markets, it's really bipolar today. You know, when you look at the market indicators right now where we are sitting, the trend is very strong, short-term trend, long-term trend. Um, globally, you look at uh, volatility indicators, option markets, they don't suggest anything very scary going on. You look at global growth indicators, uh, they all look very strong. Uh, just today, the global growth indicator hit its highest in the last seven years. So, So if you just you know, dropped today on earth and looked at economic growth, looked at where markets are, the market trend, uh, looked at protection that people are buying. Things don't look scary at all. On the other hand, if you focus on political risk, global uncertainty, um, you would be paranoid about all the uncertainties out there. So, So it's an interesting time where, of course, valuations are above average, not doesn't seem like it's you know stretched beyond imagination. It's above average, and the market seems to be pretty comfortable with uh, what it's viewing as the risks in the world. So, where do you think people are way overestimating the risk? I mean, I think one of the things we were talking about is is Europe. Um, you look at the election cycles there; people are sort of extrapolating. We had Brexit, political uncertainty. We had Trump surprising people, and now everybody's saying we're going to get. These French elections, we're going to get German elections, we're going to get anti-EU sentiment. Every story I read is another downbeat European political story. Is that a risk you think is correctly being priced in the markets, overestimated? It's it's clearly a risk. You have uh, four countries having elections this year. The risk that one of them might choose uh, you know, a, a very right or left-leaning government uh, exists. Now, I think that that because of Brexit and Trump, some of the risk is being overestimated. Um, also because the, the, the incumbents and the center parties realize this risk is high. So they are also teaming up with each other, as we recently saw in France. Yeah. So the, the true risk which exists, I think, might still be getting overestimated because of all the events that have happened in the last year. So how do you think that if you're if you're baking that into like what's actually in the market today do you think that where do you think the pressure points are is it on the that people just don't want to allocate as much to Europe so equity valuations are depressed more than they ought to be that fixed income 
uh, valuations, bond yields are very low, price is very high, currencies, I mean, the euro's been very weak. How, how do you sort of sum up those three asset classes there? So all of the above are affected by yeah. this dynamic. Um, equities is particularly interesting. I think that European equities look relatively interesting from a value perspective. And from a bond perspective, I think that the the ECB might be too late to get back on this reflationary cycle. So even a small change when they do it can have a disproportionate effect on bond yields and flows. Um, the, the U.S. bonds seem to now be broadly in a normal territory, but European bonds do seem to be particularly expensive, uh, partially because there's demand for protection might be might be too high right now. So German bonds at 35 basis points for the 10-year, negative 83 basis points for the two-year. You don't want to give your money to the German government for two years for, for negative yield? Not for a while. No, really? Um, it, but no, I mean, it is amazing how, I mean, when you even had negative yields out in, in Germany, I mean, we get positive, we got 0.07 10-year in Japan. I mean, you got these historically low government bond yields, um, equity valuations around the world, not so not so high is that would that be consistent with your with your view for say Europe Japan emerging market equities they they don't seem like elevated valuations there that's right i would say they're all they're all above average given how late in the cycle we are but uh, nothing alarming hmm. so one of the other risk factors, um, in, as, as you guys look at risk, and just a reminder here, we're talking with Dr. Vinay Nair, the co-founder and co-chairman of 55 Capital, an ETF model portfolio manager. And we're talking about risks. Um, you know, wh- in the last few years, one of the risks that keeps bubbling up is China um, and, you know, what's what's happening in their economy, their their debt buildup. Do you have a view on China? Uh, how, you know, how are people looking at the risk there? So I think people are not accounting for the China risk enough. You know, it keeps popping in and out. And uh, because it's been around for such a long time, it's it's being forgotten a bit. But even the last five, six years, some interesting things have happened. The debt that China uses has increased dramatically. Five, six years ago, China used to borrow $1 in debt to produce $1 in GDP. Today, they are borrowing almost $4 to produce a dollar in GDP. So it's much more levered growth that China is relying on today than it did even five years ago. And then if you, if you look at what's going on in the world broadly, uh, the world is getting less and less globalized. You've had less flows, capital flows, um, global flows as a fraction of global GDP. You've had less global trade. And this is you know, way before the current uh, government. You saw that global trade fell down from almost 60% of global GDP to almost 12% of global GDP in the last seven, eight years. So, and people flows, voluntary people flows, has also decreased. So we live in a world where export-oriented growth models are all challenged. We put put those two things together, along with the fact that Chinese reserves since August 2015, when the markets got a bit scared about China, the reserves were 3 trillion. Today it's 1.5 trillion. So the reserves are half of what it used to be, still a pretty large cushion. But the point is, it could all change pretty quickly in 12 to 18 months. And that China risk, uh, to me, is a significant risk in markets. So so how do you think the Chinese authorities respond to that? So, I mean, one of the concerns, you know, we've 
people have been worried that Trump's going to call China a currency manipulator, but people think he doesn't understand the situation, that if they actually let the currency float, there'd be a big weakening of the currency, not a strengthening of the currency. I mean, do you do you have a sense on what their first reaction would be towards a, you know, a, a sort of fallout and crisis? I mean, people... We Our financial crisis here, there was a risk that we would nationalize the banks, right? And Citigroup essentially nationalized. You can't, you know, they, they had to raise capital, got diluted. Their banks are already state-owned. So a lot of it, it's a, it's a very closed economy there. So it's going to play out very differently than a financial crisis here if, we, if, they, if they have bad loans that continue to go bad, right? Their government already owns all the banks. So how do you think that, you know, what, where does it play out? So first is, I think that, what we learned from 2007-2008 is that it's very difficult to predict how you know the dominoes fall out. Um, I think that it's just very difficult in a complex system as we live in today to figure out which piece falls in which market and which country. Uh, what we know is that we're talking about a very large amount of capital potentially getting disrupted. And there are all types of linkages in there. As you mentioned, you know, if, if Chinese sell treasuries, what linkages happen from that? You know, whether there are uh, intermediaries that get affected by by rising yields or uh, a, a run on the dollar or a short squeeze on the dollar. So it's very difficult, I think, to truly predict the implications of a crisis that is as large hmm. um, as as a Chinese internal or external default of liabilities. Yeah. So l- let's talk a little bit. And we got to be five six minutes for the, this first part of our program. Um, let's let's talk about you know stepping back towards how you guys build portfolios, how you think you're different than what's out there. I mean, so t- so talk about you know where you, we, we talked a little bit about how you're trying to provide these better diversified portfolios from the standard stock bond mix, um, but. Sort of thinking about to that whole whole industry and and where where your guys' role is. I mean, where do where do you see that that going over over time? So maybe I'll just touch on how how we build the portfolios differently before talking about the industry. Um, so obviously, I think the first thing I would say is in the advisory world, in the retail world, when people think of multi asset portfolios, they typically think of equity bond, commodity currency, run a mean variance optimizer, and get a multi asset solution. In the institutional world, when people think of that, they think of it differently. They think of it as, let me collect a particular reward factor, let's say trend, across all asset classes, and then combine it with another reward factor, uh, let's say um, valuation, across all asset classes, across all regions, and combine it all together. So so first thing is we're bringing, when we say multi-asset, it's a lot more institutional capability with many more building blocks, regions, factors, asset classes. And the second is, when these things are combined, historically the question has been modern portfolio theory motivated. 1960, I think modern portfolio theory is turning 65 this year, so not exactly modern. But that's been dictating um, how you should mix these ingredients together. And the question everyone asks is, how much equities, how much bonds to get a particular vol target, volatility target? Whereas all the risk forecasting tells us that what's more important is to figure out when you should reduce your risk, when you should increase your risk. So that's the second element we bring in to to these multi-asset portfolios. And the third is, in a world that we live in today, post-tax returns is what matters. Um, 
it's what you keep, not what you, you know, what your portfolio manager generates. And we have a, I think we have a very cool machine learning based tax algo, which uh, harvests a lot more losses. So those are the three differentiating building blocks that advisors can mix and match to design their portfolios. So would you say some of your portfolios, would, would, you, would you have an expected volatility number on, on your portfolios and how that might differ than the standard, the standard models? We have, we have realized volatility numbers and tested volatility numbers over 10 years. We don't target a specific expected volatility, but uh, there's a good sense of whether it ranges given the design. Okay. So how much lower do you think you, you tend to be than standard markets? So if you think of, say, something like 60-40, uh, 60 all-country equity index, 40 ag, the volatility of our off-the-shelf global macro solution is half of that. Hmm. And, and how much do you have to give up in expected returns? Depends on the horizon that you think about. Um, so if you pick a comparable risk-comparable benchmark, let's say 30% ACQUI and 70% AG, then you get roughly similar volatility as our as our global macro. You outperform that by 300, 400 basis points. I knew you were going to say it's not giving up. This is going to be better. <laughs> the, I think, so what you find is in a rally, you will give up about 30% of the upside. Yeah. And uh, on the downside, you will participate in about 20% of the downside. Well, that's a, that'd be an amazing, uh, amazing outcome. I'm sure a lot of people would love to get more, you know, 300 basis points over half the volatility or participating a lot less of the downside. That, that, all, sound, that all sounds great. Um, any, before we, we, we close up this first part of the conversation, any other areas of, of what 55 Capital is focused on that you'd want our, our listeners to know? The, the one area I would just highlight is uh, the, the technology component of the firm. You know, uh, asset management is really getting disrupted by technology. You mentioned robo-advisors earlier. What we have tried to do is really bring in active, passive, and the technology components in one business. So we have a front end that allows advisors to customize their own products and a back end that allows us to manage multiple portfolios with and without tax overlays for thousands of accounts. So, so it's a business that takes the best out of active financial research, passive building blocks, ETFs, and technology. We really think that's the future of asset management, which is to bring together these ingredients with a, with a clean sheet of paper. Well, that's, that's great. It's been a great conversation here with Dr. Vinay Nair in the studio here with us at Wharton, uh, a visiting professor here at the Wharton School, also the co-founder and co-chairman of 55 Capital Partners, where our vice chairman of Wisdom Tree, Bruce Levine, is, is involved with. We're going to talk uh, on the second part of the program with Mark Lehman. He's the president of JMP Securities. Uh, we're gonna, Dr. Vinay Nair is going to stay here with us in the studio for that conversation. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. Joining me in the studio here in Philadelphia, we have Dr. Vinay Nair. He's a co-founder and co-chairman of 55 Capital Partners, also a visiting professor here at the Wharton School. Uh, and joining us by phone for this half hour is Mark Lehman. He's the president of JMP Securities. Uh, he has been before, prior to joining JMP in 2003, he was the Global Director of Research uh, of Institutional Sales and the, as the Global Director of Equity Research at Bank of America Securities. Mark, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. How are you? Very good. Well, why don't you uh, give us a little bit more background? What do you focus on uh, so we can, we can help steer the conversation? Tell us a little bit of your focus uh, at JMP Securities. 
thank you. So JMP is a uh, San Francisco-based investment bank. Uh, we focus on growth equities. Um, so we are a uh, being domiciled in San Francisco. We have a lot of exposure to healthcare and technology, which is a very important component to the Bay Area economy. Um, we also have uh, two other verticals besides tech and healthcare, that being real estate and financial services. Uh, we focus on growth, uh, emerging growth. So uh, we try to be involved with the equity capital markets. We were fortunate to be part of the SNAP IPO yesterday. Um, and the uh, people who started this firm were part of other firms back in the 90s here in San Francisco. For some of your listeners, they may remember Montgomery Securities and Hamburg and & Quist and Robertson Stevens, three firms that are no longer. We're the only firm currently domiciled in San Francisco who does what we do. So uh, we, we try to be part of the equity capital markets and raising capital for growth companies. And we focus on institutional investors, so it means we're not talking to retail investors. We're talking to the institutions who invest in those stocks. Very good. So so maybe tell us some of your experience on this tech IPO market. Snap, one of the biggest tech IPOs uh, in quite some time. I mean, what do you think the demand? Certainly, uh, it's been a healthy trading since it's launched only two days here. But lo- IPO price, I think, 17. Today, it's at 27. So we've seen a pretty healthy reaction in the markets. I mean, what's what's been the reaction that you've seen? Well, like you said, it's been a very healthy reaction. I think I think a lot of people um, who were uh, reading the articles in the in the national press over the last couple of weeks were mostly reading articles that questioned its valuation and questions the success of the IPO. And I would guess you'll read over the weekend more articles questioning the valuation and more importantly questioning what's happened since they priced it at 17 and now it's trading at 27 or up over uh, 50%. I think. Um, Listen, there's a dearth of IPOs that have happened over the last few years. There were only, you know, 25-odd IPOs in 2016. There's only been a couple this year, one of which was pricing um, about a month ago, and on the eve of its uh, pricing got snapped up by, no pun intended, by Cisco. So there's a dearth of IPOs, and a company like Snap has a lot of name recognition, has a lot of fans, and I think people don't want to be the ones who miss it. And so you remember Facebook priced it, you know, in the mid-30s and traded down almost 50%, and has since then been kind of a historic run, I think there's a lot of people out there who are going to give SNAP the benefit of the doubt, and the uh, lack of, of an alternative uh, makes some people really have to invest in it. And I think the retail component is really important as well. So maybe give us a little bit of your view on, on the tech market, the social media market. I mean, you've had some really big winners. You've had Facebook, you've had Google um, as, as garnering a huge share of you know, the advertising dollars that's going out there. And then you know, the other big social media companies, I think of Twitter came out with a lot of fanfare. And now you've got Snap. You know, Twitter, um, you could say, has not been in, you know, one of the more successful, at least from the stock side, um, in the last few years. I mean, how, how do you view that whole ecosystem, and uh, I mean, where, do, where, do you see, where do you see things going? Well, it's the right question. I mean, the, um, the move away from traditional advertising to the likes of Facebook and Google is, is not only a large market and accelerating, I think it's in its infancy. Um, I think the use case for those kind of um, companies and the, and the benefit that advertisers get, uh, it's hard to uh, imagine anything decelerating there. The question is, what do we want to pay for it? Twitter tried to monetize that and continues to try to monetize that very unsuccessfully. Um, For example, they paid a billion dollars for rights to stream the NFL, which I think has been a success in terms of people watching it through Twitter, but in terms of getting the kind of advertising that they wanted, I'm not sure that's been a success. And Snap, of course, is the question mark. Uh, Do they have what it takes to monetize their user base, which is overwhelmingly young, is very, very engaged in their product. The average user of Snap 
checks their SNAP almost 20 times a day and is on their SNAP 30 minutes a day. And that's really heavy engagement. And they also have the benefit of knowing exactly who's on it, when they're on it, what they're watching, what demographic they have, et cetera. And I think that's very powerful for advertisers. I think the use case for other digital media companies to monetize this is, is a question mark. I mean, clearly people are spending a lot of time on Facebook and Instagram and Snap, and they certainly spend time on Twitter, our president included, but can, can it be monetized? And I think that's the, the I won't even say the $64,000 question. It's probably the $64 billion question given the market cap of Snap. And I think there's a lot of people questioning that. And Snap's being given overwhelming benefit of the doubt right now. Let me ask uh, Paul Vina in the conversation. Do you use any of these social media platforms? Um, we're so I'm 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 36 here. You're you're going to be approaching a little bit a little bit a few years older than me. Um, I'm on the Twitter platform for news. I, I like to to read it and get a lot of my news there. But I never joined the Facebook party. Never joined. I haven't been on the Snap platform yet. Obviously, Google is your intertwined daily. But what what about you? Are you are you on these platforms? I'm not. I'm not. Though I have to say that. Uh, I feel much older because I'm not uh, on these platforms. And, and the post-Trump phenomena has definitely changed that for many of my friends. Yeah, you got to be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, so we, 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 we formally are on Twitter, Twitter now, not me personally, but the firm is. It, Mark, what about you? Are you are, which, which, how, how do you get involved in these things? Well, I, I have a Facebook account. I have a Twitter account. I have a Snap account. I would not say I'm an active user, um, but, you know, the, the, the Facebook and, 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 and other analogies always reminded me of that kind of famous quote about uh, when Hall of, Hall of Notes made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they said they had 100 million albums sold and nobody ever bought one. Um, nobody's ever on Facebook and nobody's ever on Twitter, and yet you read the statistics and everybody's on them. Okay, the average person checks their Facebook constantly, and the demographics show that. Yeah. So I'm on Facebook, and... I'm more of a voyeur than anything else. I watch what my friends are doing. I like to see what's I, I, I skim through it. But I'm, I look at it multiple times a day. Twitter, the same thing. I would not say I'm an active user of Snap, but I'm wildly impressed about what they're doing on the advertising front. And if you look at some of the things and some of their partners who are doing some of the advertising there, it's extremely creative. It's these chunky sound bites that you get out of all these companies. And I think they've done a great job with some of their partners about collecting some of those advertising dollars. Um, Facebook's the same thing. I think the kind of engagement they're getting and the kind of specificity that they're getting. I'll give you another example. Um, you know, Unilever brought a company called Dollar Shave Club uh, last year. Dollar Shave Club, as some of you and your listeners would know, was a way to buy razors monthly over time. They were far cheaper than what you get in the grocery or the other stores. And they, um, you know, they were not a, maybe a superior razor, but it was a really interesting uh, monthly model. And Unilever paid a billion dollars for a company that was founded five years ago that was not profitable but growing very, very rapidly. And one would ask, why would they do that? Unilever probably makes better razors than anybody. And the answer is they knew their customer, right? They knew when they bought the razor. They knew how old their customer was. They knew how often they bought the razor. They knew what time of day they bought their razors, et cetera. And it's a metaphor for what's going on in digital media and what these advertisers are seeing. Similarly with Jet, Walmart really didn't have a strategy, and Walmart paid a lot of money for Jet. And I think they feel very happy with that. And then you look at what Target's doing, and Target stock's been under siege because they don't really have a great digital strategy. And that's the, the conundrum that I think a lot of retailers are under, is trying to figure out the digital strategy and how to connect to consumers who really don't see the experience of going to the mall or shopping like the traditional consumer used to see. 
We're talking with Mark Lehman, the president of JMP Securities. We've got Dr. Vinay Nair here in our studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, Mark, so you mentioned that your firm's specialty beyond tech, you do look at healthcare, you do some stuff in financial services, uh, given Vinay and I both are you know, probably more involved, closer to the financial services component. I'm curious what you think you know, is, is happening in, 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 that, in that market. What are, what are some of the trends you guys are, are very focused on there? In financial services? Yeah. Well, we a few of the uh, uh, important trends are clearly um, what's going on with uh, asset management and what's going on with the move to uh, passively managed investments. Um, clearly, the ETF phenomena is, is here to stay and it's not slowing down. I think on the advisor side, which again is a side we don't concentrate on, there's a lot of pressure on commissions and there's a lot of pressure on on uh, how the business is done. Maybe less pressure than we would have seen had Hillary Clinton won the White House. Um, but it's a, it's a model, and financial services models, when they go one way, rarely decelerate. And I think this model towards lower fees and higher expectations is one that's going to continue. You saw um, Schwab and the others match the cost of trades that were uh, uh, charged to retail consumers, and that has gone down, as you'd expect. And I think that trend probably does not decelerate. Um, there's a lot of competition for those dollars. Technology is helping um, cut, cut costs and cut um, into some of the high commissions that have been paid over time. Um, other trends that I think you see is um, the equity capital markets being a part of, of uh, what used to be uh, relegated to some smaller uh, group of investors. So you see companies like Blackstone and Apollo and others have publicly traded funds, um, which are used to be relegated to big institutional investors and individual investors can buy those stocks. And I don't see that decelerating. There's lots of equity capital that's uh, being invested in these companies. And I, I think that's going to continue. There's, you know, I've never seen a time where there has been as much dollars focused on fewer investments, the snaps of the world and some of the other uh, halves, if you will. And I see a lots of ideas that are having a tough time raising capital. There seems to be this bifurcation of the market. There's a lot of capital swimming out there, and they're looking for fewer and fewer ideas. So you, the kind of premium multiples that you're getting for some of the halves, I think, is going to continue. So, so Vina, where what's your take on, on – we, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the things that, that Mark touched on in the first part of the program, the trends towards passive – the you know the advisor world how you how your firm as an ETF manager is fitting into that um, obviously I'm, I'm biased as as part of an ETF company is sort of bl- believing in that trend towards passive and and, and ETFs is is gaining but any other trends in the financial services industry you you you'd point to I agree with all those trends and the only one I would add to it was just the technology trend which is um, delivery of different portfolio solutions is getting more and more customized uh, for which. Technology is needed, so it can be scaled up at low costs, you know, um, which is creating some of those robo-advisors, and you see different flavors of them today, from from B2C models to B2B models to hybrid human-machine models to just machine models, some within large asset management firms, some independent, and all of that is telling us that, that um, the trends Mark touched upon are um, are further being delivered using technology. Mark, what about that intersection between tech and finance? I mean, where do you see the fintech world? Do you have any any opinions on on the groups there? Yeah, I think the continued um, uh, rapidly uh, applied technology to those groups is going to continue. You're going to see that. You're seeing that as software is applied to traditionally um, more uh, less where less technology was applied to things like payroll and accounting and HR and all the P 
pieces of a organization, that technology is playing a huge role in the in the cost uh, structure of those uh, parts of the business, and that has been a huge part of the SaaS, the software as a service technology market. You've seen some really impressive IPOs come that are are, are helping the financial technology world. Companies like Workday and Cornerstone On Demand, two companies. Uh, there's uh, a company called Tableau that has a visualization visualization product for software and it just it for for technology and data that's just really impressive and i think you're going to continue to see more and more technology hit traditional kind of slow moving um fintech world um and you'll see a lot of ipos come out of this this space we at jmp have three or four technology companies that show the cornerstone uh, or the intersection of those two uh, uh verticals and you're going to see more and more of those over time because the kind of profitability and the growth of these sectors is, is, is continuing. Very good. So one of the big news items this week, uh, beyond the SNAP IPO, uh, last week if we were on the program, maybe there was a less than a 50-50 chance the Fed was going to raise rates. Uh, and now it seems to be uh, the odds are increasing, maybe even Janet Yellen speaking as, as we're talking here. And uh, I believe she's saying the Fed's going to raise rates this month. It seems like the market has backed them into a corner here, Vinay. You talk about risks. I know you believe uh, monetary policy uh, potentially is one of the risks, but ha- talk about where, how you see it interacting, the risk for monetary policy. So the um, I think as we spoke about earlier, the, the markets are pricing in reflationary expectations, and uh, right now, the probability of a rate increase is is significant, and typically that predicts a rate increase. So uh, we would expect a, a rate to go up, rates to go up. But the real risk is not the immediate uh, rate going up. It's something something more important, which I believe the market is not thinking about as much. Um, we've been used to a world where the Fed has been the only game in town. You know, cutting down rates and and keeping the economy moving, and now while things are looking good, and the fiscal policy is an additional tool, you'll see a tug of war between what fiscal policy is trying to do and what monetary policy is trying to do. So rates would be raised to keep inflation in check, to keep growth in check, while uh, infrastructure spending and other such fiscal policy moves will try to do precisely the opposite. How this tug of war plays out between the administration and the Fed is a significant risk, especially when uh, when the government can choose a Fed nominee to replace Yellen, if they replace Yellen early next year. So, so Mark, I mean, uh, we've got Dow 21,000. We've got the Fed potentially hiking rates here in March, it looks like, increasing odds of that. Any, any thoughts on just the overall markets and how that ties to the Fed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the market clearly has had a historic run here since the election. Uh, I think if you would have gauged uh, investor sentiment even after the market has run, like it has, that a two fifty ten year would probably have been uh, that probably would have been far too low anybody's expectations. I think people would have thought the ten year would have been closer to three percent given that kind of run. Um, and there seems to be somewhat of a decoupling between the two. So for the last 2,000 points of the Dow, the 10 years basically traded flat since the beginning of uh, of, the, of the year, end of you know end of December. Um, I, I think the concerns are right. I think this intersection between monetary and fiscal policy is, is the right thing to look at. I think um, rates are going higher, and deficit spending 
generally is inflationary, and I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. Uh, the market's getting priced pretty close to perfection, although there's some sectors that are not. There's a, a lot of the market is being priced like it's all good, and uh, it may be. But if it's not, you're going to see a pullback, um, and 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 you clearly are going to have some budget issues between the both sides of the aisle as well as with the president that are not going to go straight straight down the fairway. You're going to have some issues, I think, as it relates to policies that um, are just there's going to be some things that the president wants that are not going to happen. And when that happens, when the market seems uh, priced to perfection and it's not perfect, we're going to see something probably to the downside. This has been a great run for the market. I, I think investors got to be a little careful. Um, because if if they feel like they've missed it and they got to plow in today, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, I mean that the everybody wants Trump to focus on his his pro tax cuts, his pro markets uh, agenda items, and and it's going to be interesting to see they navigate a lot of these issues. There's not universal agreement on how they get these tax cuts done. Um, the further that gets pushed back, it it seems the longer. Uh, you know the, the the more challenges we we might have, uh, Vinay. I know you're you're running on time here. What's any any closing thoughts from you as as you listen to the to the program here today? I think we live in super interesting times. You know, on the one hand, there's there's so much to be optimistic about because of the developments in technology and new interfaces, new ways to use data, AI, machine learning, and on the other hand, it just seems pretty medieval with deglobalization and reversing all the all the openness that's been created over the last 15, 20 years. I think how this plays out is really how markets are going to shape out. Yeah, well, Dr. Vinay Nair, he's been the co-founder the co, uh, of 55 Capital, visiting professor here at Wharton. Thank you for, for joining us with us in the studio. Uh, and we're, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back here as a regular guest. Thank you. Pleasure. So, so Mark, um, any, you know, as, as you think about just sort of summarizing, you know, where we are, you think you see some of the risks building up from, you know, from just the where we've been for the last last few months, big, strong gains. I mean, any sectors that you do think, um, I mean, your, your focus has been been tech and that, that IPO market. Any other sectors that you think are, are more attractive than others at, at this stage? Well, healthcare is kind of an interesting spot. We, we at JMP spent a lot of time on life sciences and, and biotechnology. And um, that 20, from the summer of 2015 to about uh, the end of last year, the market had taken a pretty big time out in biotech. Uh, albeit after a historic run from kind of 2012 to 2015. So it had a very large run on the backs of some incredible discoveries, things like Hep C and some other diseases that had been um, found, some wonderful drugs to cure, um, if uh, if not take care of, but wholeheartedly cure things like hepatitis. The market took a very large turn to the south, um, for about 18 months from the middle of the summer of 15 till about the end of last year. And the programs that these biotech companies have not slowed down. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of drug discovery this year. You have a lot of readouts from certain companies in, in uh, different parts of oncology and other um, orphan diseases. And I think that's an area where investors should continue to pay attention to, have some exposure to, because I think those kind of advances are not going to decelerate. Yeah, they, they seem to be very worried that Hillary was going to come in. She's going to be, you know, more price pressures on on some of the healthcare companies, and, and you saw some challenging times. Um, and then, you know, you get some Trump tweets also on on the healthcare side. I mean, do you think there's this political risk that that he might still put pressure on them, or do you think just as the growth areas when they discover new drugs, that's going to be, you know, the, the blockbuster winners? I mean, how do you think about the big pharma companies versus these life sciences companies? Is is all the growth going to come from the biotech and, and health? sciences and and how do people actually think about building portfolios where a lot of it's like lottery ticket winners where there's big payoffs but a lot of losers yeah there's there's definitely 
um, that, that kind of binary outcome when you come to small cap and mid cap biotech. You have some potential winners and potential losers, and I would um, certainly recommend to uh, individual investors that picking one name or picking two names is probably not the way to go, but having some exposure to portfolio managers who have a sweet approach um, to, to biotech is probably the way to go. Um, yes, I think large pharma has been a beneficiary. You look at the charts on Merck and Pfizer and some of the other stocks since Donald Trump took office, those have been going up. I think the threat of, 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 uh, of a tweet here and there is, is always uh, the case with President Trump, but I do think that the threat of of massive changes to the way we reimburse for medication in this country is probably diminished. Um, I do think, as it relates to biotechnology, you do want to pay, play a fund approach. And you look at the historic return on some of the biotech funds, they're, they're quite extraordinary. And I think you got you got to take a look at those because the pace of innovation has accelerated. The pace and the opportunity for shots on goal being that much more successful has accelerated giving advances in technology, and you're going to want to be exposed to this area. You don't want to put all your money in life sciences and bet on one or two drugs, but having a part of your portfolio exposed to these stocks is really important because that's where you're getting kind of innovation. That's where you're getting kind of growth. You're not going to get it in some of the areas of the economy, uh, particularly with the stocks trading where they are, given the benefit that they've gotten since the election. That's where I be concentrated on where we've had a run, but not nearly the run of some of the other sectors. Well, great. Very great conversation. Mark Lehman, the president of JMP Securities. Interesting. We're talking about the threat of a tweet. We're not talking about the threat of a snap here. Uh, so there's interesting commentary on where we focus on the tech market here. Um, you've been listening to Behind the Market, Sirius XM 111. Thanks to my guest, Mark Lehman, Vinay Nair. Thanks to our producers, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Have a great week, everybody. Forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.